Hello and welcome to another edition of GBA's Trade Policy Podcast. I'm Kevin Klein with the Global Business Alliance, and I'm pleased to be joined this month by Doug Bell, EY's Global Trade Policy Leader based in D.C., and also Michael Lightman, EY's Global Trade Partner, focusing on U.S. trade reform. Thank you both for being with us today. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. So the theme for today is how the world of trade is changing. And we are going to be taking this into a, a new format. So instead of just covering U.S. trade uh, policy uh, topics and, and things that are happening here domestically, we wanted to look around the world and things that are going on elsewhere. So we're going to be talking about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in Asia, and then we're going to move to the EU and also the U.K. as we move into it. So with that, Michael, I'll let you dive in. Thanks, Kevin. Doug and I really appreciate the opportunity to share our collective views on how the world is, of trade is changing and what we as a global firm are seeing as trade policy, regional FTAs, and other actions are taking shape. And really, again, appreciate the opportunity to record the podcast with you and share this with the members. So just again, for a little quick background, EY Global Trades practice is worldwide and has a presence in over 140 countries. And we are comprised of over 1,100 practitioners at present. We've reached out to a number of our key global trade leaders in Asia, the EU, and the UK for specific on-the-ground perspectives for today's topics to the points you've outlined for the membership. And, the, and those leaders have shared with us insights on how companies are addressing the issues and the implementations of a number of trade issues that are happening in their respective regions. So we thought that'd be really valuable for the membership. Thank you, Michael. I'm looking forward to it. It's definitely a unique perspective that we haven't had on our GBA program before. So let's dive into it. Uh, you know, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, obviously a major trade development in Asia, especially in light of uh, the U.S.'s um, no longer being part of TPP. Doug, do you want to lead us into RCEP? Sure. And thank you, Kevin. So um, I think as probably most of the audience knows, in the middle of November 2020, uh, the 15 countries in the Asia-Pacific uh, signed RCEP. Uh, these are primarily the, the ASEAN members, and then plus Australia, the other China, Japan, South Korea, and New Zealand. Uh, and this also marks for the first time that China, Japan, and South Korea have been part of the same plurilateral agreement. So it is a significant development in the region. Um, one of the notable features, though, is who didn't participate. Uh, India had been part of the negotiations uh, and then opted out uh, later in the process over concerns over tariff elimination. So they still have the opportunity to join at some point later in the future, um, although we're not expecting that to happen anytime uh, eminently. So the agreement itself, uh, it's comprehensive. Uh, it covers duty elimination of about 85 to 90 percent. Uh, and essentially, it will, those duties uh, will be phased out over uh, 20 years uh, after the agreement comes into force. Um, it also makes uh, improvements on developing a harmonized set of rules, uh, particularly for determining the country of origin. Uh, so that has the potential um, to uh, you know, simplify the various FTAs that are out there uh, in the Asia-Pacific, but I would emphasize it's the potential at this point, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. Uh, and then the agreement itself will come into force 60 days after at least six of the ASEAN signatory countries have signed, uh, and then three of the non-ASEAN uh, signatory countries. So, uh, you know, the question sort of is, as we analyze it, so, you know, what is, what is and what is not um, 
RCEP. So it, it will not initially untangle uh, that spaghetti bowl effect that we see with the F- other FTAs. And a big reason for that is that essentially if countries have existing bilateral FTAs, typically they're a higher standard uh, for the most part uh, and cover and have a faster, for example, uh, elimination of tariffs. Uh, but over time, uh, we would expect that to uh, those differences to, to shrink. It also doesn't necessarily decrease the compliance costs that firms are having to deal with now, and it doesn't necessarily reduce customs risk either. But it will do some things, and it's worth highlighting uh, that the market access and cost reduction opportunities uh, will improve over time, uh, particularly in some instances where there are products that are covered that were not covered before. Uh, and then it will also really start to drive, uh, and we're starting to see, the Michael will speak to this, how firms speak or thinking about sourcing in their procurement uh, strategies. It really will, going forward, also need to be factored in as in terms of investment decisions uh, now that there is sort of this pan-Asian uh, uh, platform. Uh, it's not as strong or as a comprehensive an agreement as the CPTPP, um, but it does have the advantage of having a, a, a broader set of uh, countries participating. So I'll stop there and let us turn, uh, Michael, if you would like to speak to sort of what we're actually really seeing on the ground and how companies are responding to this. Sure. Thanks, Doug. And I think yeah, the key question that we we wanted to pose to our colleagues in the region is what are the features within RCEP that really they are seeing the most interest and concerns from companies in the ground? We were asking questions around market access, the rules of origin, what might happen with changes in procurement. And what we've heard from our Singapore-based partner that covers the ASEAN region specifically and broader Asia along with the team and network there is that many companies remain focused on really evaluating what market access opportunities might present from RCEP itself once it goes through the the final stages of ratification and sets an enforcement date and moves forward. And so layering into what you said earlier that there's already a number of FTAs there and RCEP becomes a large, broad one, but what are the distinctions and differences? The companies have, have pointed out concerns or questions on what will what will be different and where within the region. And what we're finding is that more the North Asia region, if you will, the the China, Korea, and Japan area itself, the link that RCEP brings across those three countries amongst the 15 itself in within the agreement, will probably provide the largest range of benefits now as the more mature ASEAN region already had a wide range of FTAs. So I think there's some focus looking at what the market access and potential changes will need to be. But then that, that then naturally turns to the other set of questions. What about rules of origin changes within RCEP and thinking about interplay with the other FTAs on the ground already? So what we're finding is the necessity to evaluate the impacts for product qualification and potential needs to change to procurement and the sourcing profiles that those companies have. When you start thinking about qualification complications of all the different FTAs, which FTA are you going to operate under, and depending on different flows of both sourcing of origin materials and end destination of your products, you need to understand those rules and have an approach to those. And that's that's what we're seeing companies beginning now to to think through next after looking at 
market itself, what will be the requirements for origin and how to maintain the presence of, of the benefits that those trade agreements ultimately bring. So that, that's been the first question. And then the second question that we've really looked at has been whether or not companies that already have been looking at RCEP and planning for it, what, what concerns may they have depending on what stage they are in anticipating uh, shifting into a true RCEP-led platform itself. And there what we're hearing again is that companies had already been moving towards this, as you noted, Doug, because of CPTPP and then the other regional FTAs that have been developed, the EU-Japan comes to mind, uh, that you know, supply chain sourcing and manufacturing operations and decisions were already having to be looked at through the lens of those FTAs. And now as RCEP moves forward, they're going to continue to have to make adjustments necessary there as well. So I think that's that's really what we're hearing from on the ground. I think Doug, maybe Doug or Kevin, turning back to you guys to discuss sort of back to the U.S. viewpoints. Yeah, and that's a really interesting question because the first point is that it's what we don't hear happening uh, from the U.S., uh, and it's really the sounds of silence. The U.S. has made very clear, uh, at least in this, the administration initially, that it wants to focus domestically uh, and that, you know, big plural lateral or even bilateral FTAs aren't on the table. Uh, and so I think it's certainly understandable given the challenges of the pandemic and uh, some of the, the other economic issues the U.S. is facing. But I think as the conversation heretofore has highlighted, there's a lot going on and, you know, the, there will be a lot of pressure put on the new administration. You know, what are you going to do in Asia? And so, you know, initially it may not start off as a comprehensive agreement like the CPTPP, but there'll be, you know, maybe there's something the U.S. can do in terms of, you know, digital agreements or others. But uh, particularly as, you know, in geopolitical terms, Asia is so important to the United States and vis-a-vis -vis its competition with China, uh, the U.S. is going to have to think soon and more quickly than they pro it probably anticipates what kind of economic trade presence it's going to build out in Asia. Thank you for that. So a question that I would have is, what is the impact of the upcoming expiration of Trade Promotion Authority in the United States for the U.S. response? I mean, it looks like if they are going to look at something smaller than a, a multilateral agreement like CPTPP uh, <clears throat> and move it uh, on various other agreements, perhaps it's not that big of a of an impact. Well, I think as the last administration showed, there's a lot the executive branch can do without um, having to go to Congress, and so that will certainly be you know create some policy options um, for the new administration. Uh, but I again, I will you know the lack of TPA will make it very <laughs> difficult to enter into any large uh, negotiation. Um, for some of the obvious reasons. So that's something that will have to be taken care of. And I think, you know, one of the larger points is just how, um, uh, we'll say risk averse the administration is around kind of pushing trade policy and trade agreements, uh, with its, uh, democratic caucus. And so those are things that are going to have to be worked on. And so there will be this tension between sort of the, the pressures and the desires, um, uh, uh, you know, maintaining or developing a global profile with domestic politics. Okay, so moving west a little bit, I think we can talk a little bit about the EU and, and its approach to Asia and China specifically as well. 
Well, Kevin, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the highlight there, of course, is the new, um, uh, uh, investment agreement that the EU and China, uh, signed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that agreement, uh, uh, we haven't seen all of it yet, so it's hard to, you want to hold final judgment until you've had a chance to look under the hood. But, uh, it covers market access commitments in the investment space. Um, addresses fair competition rules, sustainable development, and then there's also, importantly, a dispute settlement clause. Um, so these, uh, this agreement will still have to be approved by the EU Parliament uh, before it can go into implementation. Uh, and uh, But it is a significant uh, de- development. Um, the timing, of course, was um, obviously driven a little bit by, uh, let's say, geostrategic considerations and Probably the desire by China seemed to show a bit of more negotiating flexibility uh, towards the end there, and its desire to get that done, uh, and perhaps also position itself vis-a-vis the United States. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are a number of particular features that this will will, will help with. It will uh, create um, increased level of access for EU investors in China. Um, it also... Uh, you know, gives the EU companies the ability to establish and buy new companies in key sectors. Uh, and so in that regard, it certainly levels the playing field. Um, and then also there are commitments for China in terms of rules on state-owned enterprises and transparency and subsidies. Um, and some of the, particularly the market access in the services sector and some of those rules will also be multilateralized. So it's not only just EU firms that should benefit but that uh, for because of WTO t- uh, requirements, other uh, international firms will be able to take some advantages of that. So, um, you know, what it doesn't do, it's to be very clear, it's not a trade agreement. So it doesn't eliminate customs duties uh, and, um, you know, for goods uh, going through uh, into the EU, EU or uh, into into China. Um it's it's worth also just commenting on because this this was a, a move on the chessboard, uh, no question about it. These would be sort of the larger competition um, uh, that you know China is engaged in with the United States uh, and and Europe to a certain degree. And so one of the really interesting things is to sort of see how it was received in the by you know by trade and uh, national security mm-hmm. policymakers in the United States and. I think this is one where, you know, as I've taken the pulse, I've sort of seen um, the longer people study this, sort of, I would say, the more concerned uh, they, they, they've they gotten. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, initially the question is, does this prevent U.S. Uh, European cooperation vis-a-vis China? In a strictly legal sense, I, I don't think that's the case. But I think in a more in the kind of foreign policy and geopolitical sense, it will make it a little bit more challenging. And I'll give you a specific example that you know, sometimes we don't always think about. But, you know, as I mentioned, this agreement has to get passed in the EU uh, parliament. And so, you know, the EU political apparatus is now going to be in the position of sort of selling this agreement to parliament. If you think that through, it's going to be a little bit tough to be taking, you know, harder stands on, Let's say EU uh, Chinese subsidies policies, you know, while at the same time you're proclaiming the benefits of this agreement. So I think as a practical matter, um, you know, I think it will uh, make the kind of U.S. 
US-EU nexus a little bit more challenging for both sides uh, to the extent that they share, have shared objectives around, um, you know, addressing, you know, their common economic concerns with China. Mm-hmm. Very good. And I mentioned having to go through the EU Parliament, and obviously there's a chance that the EU Parliament might uh, require some amendments or are looking at certain areas of the agreement. Is there certain... Is there certain particular pieces that you think people should have their eye on as uh, potentially areas for amendment? Well, I, you know, that's a really good question, Kevin. And I, I think the first one is, and foremost, is probably in the human rights space and kind of the labor provisions. Um, and, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, the EU Parliament um, kind of takes its role in, in, in that dimension pretty careful, uh, pretty seriously. And so I, I do think that. Um, you know, that is a potential area where they may try to weigh in. And, you know, by the same token, it's, it's, it's a, certainly a sensitive area for, uh, China, uh, to grapple with. And so, sure. um, you know, that, that could be sort of, you know, point to some potential tensions down the road. Sure, sure thing. And another question I had there is that when, when this was first announced, some of the pro agreement, um, people in the EU pushed it as being analogous to the phase one deal that the U.S. and China signed under the Trump administration, kind of getting the EU back to the same level of access uh, with China as the as the U.S. already has through that agreement. Do you think that's fair or, or an accurate description? Um, well, I, I think there are aspects of it, certainly. And, and but I mean, the phase one deal was, I mean, you know, had purchase commitments, for example, and that was not something mm. that was part of this agreement. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the Chinese are good negotiators and, you know, they they have a set of, you know, sectors that, you know, they were sort of willing to liberalize. And I think they started that with, um, you know, the United States and that's now been extended to, to Europe. So I, I do think there is some truth to that. But I also do think that there's probably some, you know, areas incrementally where the EU, you know, now maybe EU firms have some advantages uh, that take them beyond the phase one agreement. So if you look at the sectors, for example, and the, you know, the opportunities, particularly um, on the manufacturing side where uh, those commitments, I market access commitments I mentioned, are not multilateralized in the same way that they are in services. Okay, very good. Well, excellent. Thank you for that overview. Um, so hopping across the channel and out of the EU now, um, looking at the UK, obviously Brexit's been dominating the trade space in the UK for a number of years now. Michael, can you give us the latest? Absolutely, Kevin, and thanks. And I think you know when we talk about Brexit, it's such a all-encompassing topic itself. So I'm going to focus primarily around the trade flows and trade lane issues that we see on a day-to-day basis for our clients. Of course, there's a lot more to Brexit with the United Kingdom exiting uh, the uh, the EU itself and things they've had to do on a number of fronts. But really, when we start to think about it, it in terms of a trade perspective, it really is the end of, of an era of free movement of goods across the EU and the UK borders under the, under the channel and the way products were flowing back and forth. And we're now starting to really see some of those impacts with the border controls that have been reestablished now. So there are export formalities going both directions. There's import formalities in the UK as it stands up its own processes. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of devil in the details that, that are happening on the ground as, as it went into effect after the new year. So with, with that said, there's, there's a couple things that I'll go into. Uh, but before I do that, just quickly, the UK has been 
working to position itself now away you know, outside and independent of the EU for, very, for its role with the trade agreements. So with Japan, it made some additions or some modifications to what was really the the prior agreement that the EU and Japan had just so that the UK-Japan deal would, would mirror it effectively and work with the new controls. And, of course, everyone's aware that the UK has also looked to apply to join the CPTPP as well. So that's interesting to see as they, they move forward with those things while they continue to work out some of the details. Uh, the, the areas beyond that and some of the other matters that are keeping companies awake at night and busy have also included looking at the very specific issues of the physical trade, if you will, goods flowing and the customs issues. So what are our colleagues are seeing both on both sides of now the hard border, the UK and the EU, is that companies are really focused on what we're calling essentially three states of play, the now, the next, and beyond. And so let me go into each of those to provide just a few examples. So in the now state, what we're looking at is stabilizing what's happening effectively today with the, the current state itself. And there's a heavy emphasis on operational issues that we're seeing uh, that companies have run into some problems, but they are maintaining as best as possible flow of goods. Nevertheless, there has been a concern with maintaining an undisrupted supply chain, which has been strained, as, any, as many know, while also maintaining the compliant import and export functions that are essential to the flow of the goods. Now, one of the things that's that's possible for companies is to utilize a an initial six-month deferral for filings of customs entries which will allow and facilitate physical flows to keep markets moving, but there will ultimately be a, a calling, if you will, for having all the entries filed and being able to show accountability of what was required on those entries. So there is a risk of error and retention of the necessary documents that may get lost in the shuffle of this current state and cause major issues come July when the filing deadlines will be made and have to be prepared. So one of the things is that companies really need to stay completely on top of those requirements, maintain documents, and be essentially ready to submit those as if they have done them in real time. When we move to the next, then now we're talking about optimizing in the current state itself. So with all the new rules that have been laid out with the agreements, there's still some questions and concerns on procedures and operations on how they will work in practice. And so companies are evaluating and working through a number of those things right now. A lot of that emphasis has been through free trade agreements, looking at inward processing rules, how to optimize cost mitigations and utilize cost and custom strategies that can help throughout the whole customs life cycle that occurs with the flow of the goods. So that's an area that a lot of companies are really starting to dig into at this point. And then there's the beyond, the future state. What, is, what do things look like once everything is, has, run, has smoothed out and are starting to optimize flow and, and movements of goods and it becomes a little bit more stable of an environment to be planning? Now you start reaching farther out to looking at changes with suppliers, looking at where your customer end destinations will be, who, the, who competitors might be and how they're operating and what you might need to do. And that's hard to do right now while you're trying to deal with the day-to-day -day issues at the border, but once we see some optimization and some stabilization, that future state starts to come into play. And that seems to be where many companies are starting to look for on the UK and Brexit side at this time on what will happen and how they will be able to do things. 
So that, that seems to be a lot of what we're seeing. Uh, some of the concerns have been how the, the, how last minute the final rules of origin and some of the limitations within the rules of origin were that were published in the last week of December ahead of the January 1 official date. There's also some concerns with the restrictions for distribution centers in the UK that may not provide for the free tariffs that had previously existed. So there's, there is a, a process right now of companies going through an understanding and evaluation, mod- modifying and adjusting sourcing while at the same time trying to meet all the demands of product and flow and manufacturing layered in, of course, you know, with the pandemic itself that causes the disruption. So, you know, there are some, some bumps in the road anticipated, uh, in across different subsectors. And there are some areas that are going to continue to be problematic, whether it's in the agri-food sections, whether it's in chemicals, automotives, medical products, as well as some of the, the products that people consume and, and are looking for, wines, uh, you know, spirits, liquors, cheeses, et cetera, that we will have some issues. And then you get into some of the, the consumer uh, product marking and safety requirements that all have to be layered in as well. So there's, there's still a long way to go. At this point, but I think what we're hearing and seeing is clients are starting to find their way and they're working through it. And then you have some other key things that there's been some deferrals besides the customs declarations, but also getting finality of the agree of some of the key uh, trade requirements in the agreements that are now into April that need to be done. And then finally, you've got the UK and the US working to try to uh, complete the trade agreement that had been just about to completion under the prior administration, uh, but needs to go through final, you know, the final steps to go across that finish line. And that goes, Kevin, to your discussions about trade promotion authority with its, with its summer end date. There are some earlier dates of concern effectively by April 1st. So about five weeks from now that there will need to be some ability for the U.S. to determine and present to Congress intent to move forward with the U.S.-U.K. trade agreement. And that requires a lot of things that would normally be difficult to do under normal times without the pause that the USTR has had uh, during the transition of, you know, of the presidency to and, and the changeover of the USTR itself going through nomination process this week, but ultimately that needs to be concluded so that the agreement itself can move forward. So those would be some of the things to be watching as they as companies are trying to determine what is, what ultimate long-term impacts are going to look like to their business model. So with that, I think, Doug, some thoughts on, you know, a little bit more on the U.S. piece? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Michael, I think you captured, um, I, I would summarize the UK, uh, US possibilities is not very likely. Uh, most observers of which I would include myself don't think that's going to happen, uh, before April, uh, and hitting the TPA. That doesn't mean it can't happen, uh, with some alternative scenario. So for example, you know, with a country like the UK, does the US even need a TPA to, you know, pass a deal and stuff? So those will be the type of scenarios. More broadly, um, as I suggested earlier, um, you know, the, the, the US has signaled a pause. It brings to the table a much more labor, uh, focused, uh, trade policy, you know, where the goal, um, as it's been noted is that, you know, uh, People are not just consumers, they're workers, and um, 
you know, that a policy that needs to support that and, ha- you know, and, and look a little bit different, uh, than, than we've seen in the past. And so the question will be, you know, can, uh, you know, an assumption that Catherine Ty gets, uh, confirmed, will she be able to sort of be the one that can sort of bridge the gap between, let's say, traditional labor-based approach, uh, and, and a democratic caucus, uh, and, you know, the, the new kind of more populist nationalist environment. Um, and so I think we'll really have to see. And as noted, there will be external pressures that, you know, the U.S. doesn't uh, necessarily have its own time frame. It's operating in a world that's dynamic and very fluid and a lot of changes going on. So it'll be an interesting ride to see over the next six months how that gets resolved and uh, where the U.S. takes its policy. Yeah, it's very interesting. And you, you mentioned the labor uh, aspect as being a, a potential new approach to the agreement that could also cause um for the recalculation and delay, um, you know, some of that, if you take the USMCA as a as kind of a template, it, the trade agreement negotiations for the U.S. have been trending that way. And Catherine Tai uh, was was instrumental to, to that and has referenced it in her discussions with the Hill through the confirmation process. But it seems to be labor as well as environmental concerns. Along with those, are there any other known issues with the U.K. negotiations specifically that we think are, are holdups right now, things that um, make this even more difficult? Well, I, you know, I, I do think that there are sort of the traditional market access type issues, um, that, you know, like any negotiation, you know, we're being held off to the end, you know, the harder ones. So there are issues, mm-hmm. for example, around, you know, national healthcare service and, you know, particularly around agriculture and standards and, you know, the proverbial you know, chlorinated chicken problem. Right. Uh, that's plagued. Uh, <laughs> trade relations with uh, Europe in general. So, you know, those things are still going to have to be worked forward. You know, that said, I think the UK and the US are, are two fairly close, um, uh, closely aligned economies. And so, you know, getting, you can definitely see pathways to get into yes, but there is no agreement that doesn't take a little bit of some, you know, compromises and difficult exchanges to be made. And, you know, they were sort of at that stage when the administration change, and that would still have to happen unless one side or the other was ready to just say yes. And I don't really see that happening. So that's that's a process they're going to have to go through. And again, it'll require one of these scenarios to sort of, you know, play out. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, well, obviously a lot going on, a lot going on all around the world. Do you all have any thoughts on the kind of the overall U.S. approach to these various challenges? I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in here, and then Doug, you can certainly add a little bit more from the policy perspective. You know, I, th- I think we're going to finally see some momentum further to the WTO now having a direction with with a director, the ability to see some negotiation to conclusion around the Airbus sub- Boeing subsidy matters. And ultimately, as Doug talked to a little bit, uh, the continued enforcement but negotiations with China around the phase one agreement itself, the obligations therein, and working to see a, a path forward that allows the U.S. to return back to continuing to find ways to work with allies, strengthen those trade relations, but also to the other points now that, as you mentioned, Kevin, around labor, the need to look after the U.S. supply chain and continued rebuilding of U.S. manufacturing is, is becoming pretty clear in 
nominee ties statements that have been made. The, the, it appears to be well received as well that that's what uh, Congress is looking for to build on that. And I think the bipartisan nature of a lot of the actions over the last four years will continue. But I think the mechanism and the, and the ways that they will be used is going to moderate to allow for hopefully some some less chaotic and more definable approaches both between governments and then ultimately for companies to interpret and apply into their day-to-day business operations and future planning. You know, I would just add to, to Michael's comments. Um, you know, I think there'll be sort of issues around dealing with sort of Trump legacy, you know, policy, so 301 tariffs and, you know, I think the, the – and. 232s and the administration's made it very clear that you know they're going to go through a review, you know, modify, you know, jettison or retain kind of approach on each one of those. Um, I, I think the the other area that that we'll see some continuity between administrations um, is sort of in what I would describe as industrial policies. So whether it's Buy America or the uh, EO on supply chains, which was just uh, uh, signed yesterday, those are important developments, and it really speaks to sort of that phenomenon Michael was describing of you know looking to insource, uh, build out the industrial base in the United States. That will be a big part of it, and it's also sort of consistent with you know certainly its 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 objectives on labor. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us today. I think we're out of time. But uh, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you to all of your colleagues around the world who shared their insights and were willing to give some some thoughts on the ground uh, for how these various issues are playing out uh, across the globe. So this was absolutely wonderful. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin.